You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. In this week's show, we'll be discussing three films coming soon to film scene. Our lineup includes Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne's Two Days, One Night, which opens at film scene this Friday, February 13th, and will continue to play throughout the weekend and following week. Next, we'll be discussing To Kill a Man, a Chilean thriller from director Alejandro Fernandez Almandras. To Kill a Man plays at Film Scene Tuesday, February 17th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to the exhibition of world cinema. Finally, we'll be discussing the 1995 erotic drama slash comedy Showgirls, which plays on Saturday, February 14th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Catherine Steinbach, the Programming Director of the Bichu Film Board. Welcome, Catherine. Glad to be here. And Chongmin Yu, who is also a member of the Bichu Film Board. Welcome back, Chongmin. Glad to be back. All right, I'm Leah Vonderheide, Bijou's Executive Director, and I should also mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in the Department of Cinematic Arts at the University of Iowa. Let's start with our first film. Two Days, One Night is the most recent film by Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne, brothers who have been making films that focus on the travails of the working class in Belgium for over 40 years. Having won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival twice, that's for Rosetta in 1999 and The Child in 2005, the duo are known for the intense realism of their films, which often utilize handheld cameras, natural lighting, and... Until now, little-known actors and actresses. Two Days, One Night, however, stars Marianne Cotillard as Sandra Bia, a young wife and mother of two who works in a small solar panel factory. At the opening of the film, it is made clear that Sandra has been suffering from depression and anxiety and has recently taken time off from her job. But now, just as she is ready to return to the workplace, Sandra learns that her boss has asked her 16 co-workers to vote on her redundancy in exchange for a hefty bonus of 1,000 euros each. Desperate for the income her job provides, Sandra embarks on a weekend journey to visit each of her 16 colleagues in an attempt to persuade them to give up the bonus so she can remain employed. It is not unusual for the Dardenne brothers to place a moral dilemma at the center of their narratives, but two days, one night reconfigures this, uh, their typical approach. The moral dilemma at the center of films such as Rosetta and The Child, as well as Lorna Silence from 2011, The Sun from 2002, and The Promise from 1996, is whether or not a character will let him or herself profit from the death of someone else. In Two Days, One Night, however, the stakes are not nearly so high, which is perhaps an effective strategy. With the prospect of death off the table, it is maybe easier for a film spectator to identify with characters as they grapple with the central question posed again and again by Sandra in the film. Will you vote for me or will you choose to collect your bonus? So let's start our discussion with that very question. Catherine, Changmin, 
my colleagues. <laughs> Would you stand up for a colleague if your own financial gain were in fact on the line? I would stand up for you. For if I were specifically the colleague. Yeah. No. Not, me and no one not Chong Me. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I I can't imagine ever looking into someone's face and being like, money please, instead of your health and well being and livelihood. Like, nope. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a difficult question. I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm being honest. I mean, um, I mean, I'm not being put in the situation that I have to support my family. I'm on the verge of an economic breakdown, so I cannot really judge all these people in the film. But I mean, it's a tricky question. But as you said, this film. Is somehow more forceful and more warm to me because the damn brothers don't use death as their central trope in this film. Yeah, yeah, it's much simpler. It's still hard to imagine that happening in such a direct fashion. Like, okay, you have to choose right now, today, whether or not this one coworker is going to be redundant or whether you're going to get your bonus. But it's also not this it's somewhat reasonable. I mean, I'm sure things like this happen all the time in business, but usually you don't get faced with it yourself of a very sort of direct one-to-one relationship. Like either she stays and you don't get your bonus or vice versa. But I think that, I think that y'all are wrong that, that death isn't present. I think that because she's suffered from depression and because she's kind of constantly questioning her own value throughout the course of the film, there is this kind of specter of death. Like, that she, if, if her coworkers don't feel like she's worthy of livelihood, then, like, will she? I think it's really interesting. Her character is so um, fragile at times that you, you sort of wonder how all of this is playing out in her, in her mindscape you know, and I think that's part of, of the power of the film is like it is about her self-concept in addition to this big moral question. It's like because it's profoundly affecting her her state, you know. Well, I think you're totally right. But um, I think you can make a comparison of this film with Dan Brothers' previous films. And in their previous films, the theme of death is placed at the center. Yeah. And all the characters have to sort of deal with the presence of death. They have to do their mourning. Like they have to uh, suffer. They have to go through. How are they going to deal with uh, the murderers or the murderers of their closest relatives? So I don't know. You're thinking of like the sun in that example? Yeah. Yeah. Or if you think about um, the difference is also if you think about something like The Child or Rosetta, there's a moment in both of those films where someone is essentially deciding whether or not someone's going to drown or not at their and, and they're essentially put in a place where they can save them. And if they do save them, then they're going to have consequences that are negative for them. If they let them drown, then it's sort of like. The con- there would be fewer consequences. Um, 
or direct consequences. So, and it's usually like a one moment type of thing. Like it just happens once you sort of see them processing in their head, like, what are they going to do? What are they going to decide? And one of the interesting things about two days, one night is that we get to see all of these characters, like one after another face the same exact question. And there's just that lovely sort of repetitiveness of Sandra's speech. Every time she shows up and just says like, hi, so apparently this is what happened in the first vote and there's going to be a revote. And some people felt persuaded this way because, and I was wondering if you would be willing to vote for me. And you just like the, her actual language is the same in the way that it probably would be if someone was really trying to do this. Cause she's making her case each time. Um, and then you get to see pretty varied reactions. Um, yeah. I was interested in that some are very compassionate. Some are irritated by her request. Some are shamed and some are really, really angry in ways that I was shocked by. I was wondering if you guys were surprised by any of the reactions or if any of the reactions sort of sat with you longer than some of the other ones. Um, while I was watching this, this film, I was also thinking of another documentary classic, a Salesman by mm-hmm. uh, Mesos Brothers, just because we, I mean, the plea of Sandra itself is like, uh, a salesman's like need, a salesman's need to sell the things he has. So it's like, oh, uh, I'm going to sell you a list, and you have to listen to me. But I mean, in in salesman, it is easier easier for people uh, in different neighborhoods to reject that offer. But in this film, um, this kind of selling is dramatized by a certain kind of, I know, uh, economic precarious situation. So, um, on the part of Sandra or on the part of the people she's asking? I mean, all the characters in these films, um, share this kind of economic, um, I know. Yeah. The context of, of where they are, you know, is, is the economic depression and they talk about being on the dole and they talk about like the trouble finding another job and, and money problems here and there and someone's unemployed and, you know, within the other families or whatever. So that it is like such a present thing that it's not just this simple moral question, but it's like in it in also a time of crisis, when this is all the more poignant <laughs> to be asking people because they really do have to think about it in a, in a way that they maybe wouldn't. But I thought, so one of my, one of the more interesting reactions was the, was the woman who's like apparently a decent friend of hers who just says, Oh no, 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 no. I'd love to help you. But um, I have to furnish my apartment cause I just moved out. You know, my boyfriend and I just moved in together and, you know, we got to buy like a couch and a TV and everything. And it's just <laughs> and like, and she says it so matter of factly, like you, you can get that, right? Like you can understand. But when you're thinking about Sandra providing for her family, like losing her whole job, like not yeah. just a thousand dollars, like her whole job, that it, it was like a funny reaction to me. And she's, she doesn't seem to have any guilt about it whatsoever. Whereas like other characters who feel like they can't at least express a lot of guilt or a lot of like oh man, I feel like a bad person. This this woman was just like, oh, you get it. I got to get a couch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the one that st- stood out to me, which w- was also a little bit funny in its excess, was, um, I can't remember his name, the the man who cries. 
<gasps> yeah, oh, where he yeah. just immediately starts crying. Bawling. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh boy. You know, like, so, and I don't know. It, it was difficult to stay in the narrative in that moment because it, <laughs> it seemed a little bit hyperbolic. But, um, but then again, like, she's, you can sense this kind of desperation as she's g- approaching each person, trying to find each person, tracking them down physically and trying to get face to face with them. And she's just like, you can see this trouble that she's in, you know, on her face. And so I could imagine like, you know, if you're really guilty about this, that seeing someone just all of a sudden appear in front of you, I don't know, it, but it was. I mean, all these reactions can be mapped um, to a spectrum from outer generosity to self in it, uh, selfishness. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one thing that is really curious in this film is almost all of them voted that uh, Sandra should be fired before uh, she goes to them to ask for another vote or to ask them to support her, right? So it's like, there is this kind of weird mentality that uh, that if you don't see the person face to face, you don't have to care about him or her, right? right. So, like, so it it's also a film about a certain kind of confrontation about yeah. seeing someone's face and tell them like you don't deserve this job, you don't deserve the money. Yeah. Yeah, and this kind of ties into the filmic style of Two Days, One Night, which is pretty typical of the Dardens, where they've got their handheld camera and it really hovers on Sandra the whole time. We don't really Mm -hmm. see anything outside of um, her narrative. Uh, So did you you find this an effective uh, filmic style or did you end up feeling like, did you find it that you were more empathetic to her or maybe her interactions or did it end up making you feel more claustrophobic or confrontational? Like this idea of like staying with her in her face constantly. I have to admit I was frustrated with her, but you know, she's a character who you spend so much time with that you're, you're frustrated with her reactions. You're frustrated with the people that she has to interact with. You're just like frustrated, like the whole uh, not the whole movie, but um, I feel like the majority of the movie for me was frustrating because we're so tied um, to this, not only her, but this kind of subject position of of um, going along with her on this. And, and you sort of feel like you're her companion in this journey and you're, you can sort of sense the frustration that that her and you feel empathy with the frustration that her husband feels like trying to like no we have to got to keep going and and let's not let one thing be a setback let's you know we got five more to go we got three more to go you know it's like all of this it, but it's a frustrating you know process to be involved with so i think i was a little bit and it wasn't claustrophobic but it was just like um kind of a uh, not a tedious film but a tedious subject position because it's so fraught you know I think uh, this technique is very very effective in the sense that uh, it transmits a certain kind of corporeal anxiety tension and desperation so it, it, it seems to be saying that you have to feel how Sandra feels 
to be able to identify with her and her dilemma and her situation. And I think that's why the Dan brothers stick with this te- technique for so long, for two decades, right? Mm-hmm. So, All right, guys. Um, we're going to end there. Uh, two Days, One Night opens at Film Scene this Friday, February 13th, and will continue to play throughout the weekend and following week. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss To Kill a Man. According to Bundle.com, the average utility bill for Iowans is $183 per month. I agree that seems a bit high. Green Iowa AmeriCorps is here to help by offering free home audits and weatherizations if you're a veteran, low-income household, or disabled. Green Iowa AmeriCorps is a nonprofit organization helping to make Iowans more energy efficient through low-impact home weatherizations, energy education, and community outreach. For more information or to sign up for your free audit, call us at 319-784-2735, email us at greeniowacr at gmail.com, or find us on the web at www.greeniowaamericorps.org. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, showing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, the Chilean thriller To Kill a Man. Changmin, I'm hoping your nerves held up better than mine while watching this film so that you can share your thoughts with us before we begin. (laughs) Sure. Um, So, uh, To Kill a Man is an exquisitely composed film about a man's more struggle. The protagonist and his family live in a poor neighborhood where thugs bully people for fun. One day he gets robbed by hooligans playing football nearby. Their boss even tries to sell our protagonist blood glucose meter for some money. The old man's son goes to make a bargain, but gets shot. The family manage to send the murderer to prison. However, later they find out this is only the beginning of a nightmare that keeps coming back. This film won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance Film Festival and was selected as the Chilean entry for the best foreign language film. Much can be said about the almost obsessive composition of each shot in the film within different contexts. For example, the narrative space is no longer constructed around our protagonist or other characters. The boundary of the screen is firm and solid as if we are seeing our characters within a stiff and rigid social framework that has no mobility whatsoever. These people are stuck in this impoverished situation, the cause of which is left unexplained. Furthermore, frontal shots emphasize a confrontation with the audience, who is forced to face and look at their agony. That being said, all the shots of nature and seed that are interpersed, uh, interspersed in the narrative give the audience a sense of tranquility and contemplation. In the beginning of this film, we find our protagonist is lying amidst a glittering emerald green forest, and then he gives himself an insulin shot. This rather distanced views of a non-human landscape pushes uh, push us back further to reflect upon the ethical dilemma that falls upon our protagonist. To kill or not to kill, that is the question. Ladies, I think I've given some broad sketches here. I wonder how you feel about the aesthetics of this film. 
they're really gorgeous and really effective. I think there's some similarities in uh, this film uh, that we could compare it to Two Days, One Night, where we spend a lot of time with the protagonist in this film and can't see very... Usually we can't see very far outside of what he's seeing. And given that this that death is on the table in this movie, it makes it really heightens the suspense of everything that's happening. Um, and then on top of that, in the meantime, there, yeah, there's just really beautiful scenery every once in a while when he's in the forest or at the beach um, or even when he's riding the bus. Uh, just gorgeous cinematography. Yeah, I can't stop thinking about the opening shot of the film where we get the forest and there's just like a little slot of light where we where see... Um, Jorge come through the the kind of mist of the forest and it's just so beautiful and the the way that it gets framed like this kind of um man in nature all the time like he's always cutting down trees or or you know managing this like piece of property and and so you get to see him really kind of be not, I guess it's not like at harmony with nature, but like he just, it's, he seems like he has such a place, you know? Um, and, uh, and then this kind of dilemma of the like alienation of other, other human beings, you know? So he's like, he has this place and this purpose in the world of the kind of forest where he's, um, I guess he's like a, a caretaker or a ranger, or, you know, something like that. Um, and, and then every time he's interacting with other human beings, he's just like, this is not right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go well. He's, uh, that's true. Although even in that opening shot and, and in other scenes when he's in, the, in this sort of beautiful landscape, seascape, um, there is a little bit of, I don't know, heart of darkness sense to it just because everything feels so ominous from the beginning of yeah. sort of like, ooh, we're going into the the wilderness of the human soul (laughs) and it's reflected in the wildness of the landscape. (laughs) Yeah, I know it's true, especially with the score too, that, that, that opening shot is so beautiful, but the score is just like swelling and you're like, Oh, bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, You're right. It is very heart of darkness. (laughs) Well, let's uh, put all this, um, back in the context of a certain kind of suburban cinema, because I believe uh, this film is about a certain kind of suburban dilemma of a poor neighborhood. Like uh, you have to bear with all these harassments all the time and you have to find a way to cope with this kind of constant um, tension uh, of, I know, of walking alone in the street. So I don't know, I feel like this, this might uh, provide us a link to other similar kinds of films we, we have been discussing on Benter all the time, like how to, how to depict a certain kind of uh, poor suburban area. What other films are you thinking of that we've talked about? I don't know. Like, like Rich Hill or... Yeah, Rich Hill oh, okay. or... Similar films, like, or, I mean, the famous one, La Hand. Oh, La Hand, yeah. So, it's, I mean, usually the director of of a certain kind of suburban film would choose a broader view uh, to show us how our protagonist is 
imprisoned in certain kind of social uh, desperation that is very, very hard to escape. But in this film, all these struggles are sublimated into this one question uh, that like uh, whether or not our protagonist decides to kill the bully or not, right? So do you find this strategy effective or interesting or what? I I guess I was certainly troubled at a certain point with this figure of um, the social housing, um, you know, bully kind of gang leader sort of thing becoming the symbol for, for like poorness as lawlessness, you know, like I was, I was sort of, you know, um, yeah, I was, I was cautious about that because, you know, we have this kind of nuclear family going on and, and they seem to have like this kind of, it's not, not even middle class or anything like that, but like this kind of solid foundation that, that gets, gets fractured by this, the, the kind of the social housing, the specter of the social housing that's right nearby. And, and I was just like, ah, oh, what is this trying to say? But I think I, I ended up with this film feeling like it was more about um, the kind of crisis of, of the judicial system and the crisis of law and order that like, how, how do you deal with something that's not quite a crime, not quite um, enough to arrest someone? Like, how do you how do you deal with bullying in the kind of world of of the adult? You know, um, and there's a great documentary. Um, it's like a musical documentary called Songbirds, um, and it's about this uh, British women's prison, and one woman. Um, is there for attacking her neighbor who just, they had loud music all the time and (laughs) she just like stabs her neighbor. Um, I mean, she's clearly bananas. Um, (laughs) over the course of the, of the interview, you find out that she's definitely bananas, but, um, but there is this sense of like, how do you deal with something? How do you deal with other people? Um, and yeah, unacceptable social behaviors that aren't quite criminal but it certainly veers definitely into the criminal realm here it's just like how does the law like handle the the kind of spectrum that's going on in this film anyway i think that's a big dilemma yeah i mean he's more than just a nuisance yeah actually i saw a film a few years back that is like this film except for the threat isn't uh what this man is uh proposing um, the th- because this is a real threat. I mean, yeah. I think when you're watching this film, I truly felt like this bully is going to like harm or maim or rape the members yeah. of this family. Like that is inevitable. That is going to happen. I never felt like, wow, this family really has a short fuse and their no, bourgeois no. sensibilities are just like too, too fancy for, <laughs> you know, a little... I don't even know what for the project really housing sand in their caviar. Yeah, or something. Yeah, I mean that's not what's happening here. It's it the threat is very real and it feels imminent. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was 
just effective because it, it, it allows the spectator to get on board with this question of to kill a man. Like, what is our protagonist going to do to remedy the situation? Because you, you do feel like something has to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was also thinking about films that uh, depict a certain kind of high school or mid-school bully situation. Because in those films, uh, when you identify with the protagonist, you always know he's going to get through this period eventually, like after two or three years. And, and But this film, it works like, oh, it gives you another kind of high school bully situation that you are not going to escape. Like you, you cannot just like, oh, I'm leaving this school. I'm leaving this neighborhood. So yeah. bye bye. So it's not like that. So it's, it becomes an insisting question that you have to face. You have to answer. Yeah. And we don't, I, you were sort of touching on this earlier, Chang mean, like we don't even have a sense of the space of the town or the road or even yeah. the family's house. Like the way it's shot, you have no spatial grounding. So that, again, just makes the threat more imminent because we see sort of the daughter hiding in the store from him or we see um, we see Jorge walking home at night, but we can't really tell where things are positioned in relation to other things. We don't even yeah. really know how far this forest is away from the town that he works in. Um, so you do feel like the bully's presence is it's all over. It's like an omniscient, oppressive thing that's happening to them. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to wrap up there. Again, To Kill a Man plays at Film Scene Tuesday, February 17th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons, a series dedicated to the exhibition of world cinema. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our next film, let's check on the weather. It's currently 22 degrees in Iowa City. The low tonight is 4 degrees and blustery. Tomorrow it continues to be blustery with a high of 12 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films showing locally at film scene. Let's move on to our final film, Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. Catherine, <laughs> you may have some opinions about erratic films. <laughs> so <No. laughs> would you like to start us off uh, in our discussion of this NC-17 rated film? Gosh, I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Um, Showgirls is one of those cult films that's a strange and fun mess, an absolute mess. By turns, drama, comedy, and erotica, it's a story about a woman who hitchhikes into Las Vegas and takes it over. Nomi, played by Elizabeth Berkley of Saved by the Bell fame, climbs the performance hierarchy, searching for legitimacy as a dancer. Her frenetic energy, ambition, and sexual magnetism make her one of a kind, and yet her identity is a secret throughout the narrative. She's always, always performing, sometimes well and sometimes terribly, to hide her past and her true nature. There are many characters within this film who want her or to exploit her. Um, the most interesting of them is her mentor, then competitor, then enemy, Crystal, played by Gina Gershon, who cannot hide her equal parts desire and hatred for Nomi. The amount that the women in this film push each other down and help each other up is kind of fascinating. 
The director, Paul Verhoeven, has directed several other controversial, erratic, and cult films, such as Total Recall, Basic Instinct, and Starship Troopers, to name a few. His style is somewhat difficult to grasp, but always darkly funny, sensual, campy, and self-conscious. His, few, his films are usually smart, bad objects. You aren't sure at first how they're smart, but somewhere in there is a complex morality tale. Showgirls is a film that immediately attracted such critical and commercial ire that most people haven't even tried to redeem it with analysis. So maybe let's be ambitious in our banter today. Is Showgirls redeemable somehow, you guys? Well, this film to me is immensely redeemable. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I always like uh, Paul Verhoeven's films. Like, uh, all of his films have this kind of vitality energy, like, uh, makes you want to keep watching his films. You, you, you have this kind of visual and sensual excitement, uh, excitement, like, rushing towards you and you feel (laughs) oh my god i'm being energized (laughs) that sounds like you're describing specifically showgirls (laughs) no i mean i also love starship troopers very very much i think uh uh in that particular film it also gives you this kind of bodily i don't know amusement or (laughs) excitement Yeah, it's like his films aren't quite camp, but they are operating at like a thousand percent all the time. And (laughs) and the characters in them are like are caricatures of of their own selves um, in a way that, yeah, maybe this is energizing. I found it kind of exhausting with showgirls in particular. I do. I mean, I like Starship Troopers quite a bit who doesn't in total recall actually um but showgirls i was just like tired halfway through i was just like <laughs> i can't helly handle um you know the saved by the bell girl just constantly just shouting and flailing her arms around all the time and i don't know yeah well, i mean i i started watching this film at 2 a.m in the morning and i cannot stop like <laughs> I have to finish the film. I think that's the, the ideal time to be watching. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I think I watched it on like a Sunday morning, so maybe I, my timing was off. <laughs> well, I do think that you're right. Like, So part of the cult status of the film is its star, Elizabeth Berkley, and her breaking away from this kind of teen comedy um, from Saved by the Bell, you know, the kind of teen sitcom kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's going away from this 110% and diving into this crazy hypersexualized uh nomi but mostly it's her performance style you know this the cult status of this film is part of that like the frantic frenetic like exhausting uh performance that she gives but i mean i feel like it's it's so over the top it, it's not unconscious like it has to be like a conscious bad performance you know um I don't know. I mean, she never did anything else. So I, I was wondering to myself watching this, like, oh, I wonder if she ever regretted doing this because then clearly her career didn't, like, become something else. It wasn't like this was her, like, breakout role from Saved by the Bell and then she went on to do lots of, like, dramatic performances a la Kristen Stewart or something. Like, yeah. instead, she just didn't really have a career. But then I was thinking, watching it, like... I, she doesn't look like a good actress. Like, I don't think she's like, like maybe this was the best that 
was ever going to be for her. Like this just like wild and nutsy role and good for her. She's in this cult film forever and will always have that. Well, maybe it is also a symptom of the degradation of Las Vegas, right? Because all, I mean, in nowadays, nowadays in Las Vegas, we always, we only have, you know, stars that are not, well, let's put it mildly yeah. on the top of their career. Yeah. <laughs> are you trash talking Britney Spears right now? Yeah. And Olivia Newton-Jones. Is she? perform in las vegas yes oh you were just in las vegas yeah, so you so know I, you yeah. know all the stars that are so, there <laughs> I mean, but i mean celine dion for like yeah, celine dion. <laughs> <laughs> so like four decades ago people like elvis presley or frank sinatra and other big shots were there so i mean maybe this is a sign showing how um decaying las vegas is right now i don't know like we don't have real stars in Las Vegas anymore. Like I mean, I, I don't think Nomi's performance in this film is really that bad compared to Crystal. Really? For example, I I don't think so. I don't. I mean, they're both just as confusing. Yeah. They're both like, I mean, not neither of them has any type of dramatic arc. Like they're all just they're both just like burning bright at both ends throughout the entire film. So you don't really feel any sense of like drama really, which is I think what makes it a comedy. That and the fact that as you're saying this, Changmin, the the difference between uh, uh, Nomi's first job in the strip club versus her job at the Stardust, mm-hmm. like to a viewer of the film, I was like, it's the same. They're naked in both and <laughs> yeah. it doesn't make any sense like, the Stardust isn't fa- like world famous or anything, but in her mind and in the minds of like these Las Vegas like movers and shakers, there's a huge difference between these two venues. And well, yeah. at, at Stardust, the audiences are more civilized, right? Because you cannot yell, you cannot scream, you cannot just <laughs> you know put two dollars, uh, two dollars in someone's bra. So I I know maybe that's the only difference between. Uh, these two places. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the sense of hierarchy is so particular in this. I mean, the I love the the long staircase that get, becomes the like central point of, <laughs> of this film. <laughs> the uh, it's from their dressing room at the Stardust to the stage. And everybody has to run up and down it like six times a day and uh, people get pushed down it and people just get pushed up. I mean, it's just um, uh, this kind of symbol for the the hierarchy of Las Vegas, but it's such an empty, like it's such a long staircase. It makes no sense that it's so long. I mean, and um, it just becomes this kind of empty, it's an empty hierarchy. Just like, you know, Nomi and uh, Crystal, they're like they're like these empty signifiers, right? They're just they're Las Vegas. They are these kind of performances of performances, not like never genuine, right? Um, I I don't know. Even like throughout the film, even when we have seemingly like more poignant moments, even between Nomi and Crystal. No, like it, it it's <laughs> it suddenly becomes like a seduction scene. Like they just feel uncomfortable, so they need to start performing again. Um, or yeah. what's the um, the bouncer from the club? 
where I, I, I can't tell what's going on in this movie when he's like, <laughs> you've got talent. You've got the most raw talent I've ever seen <laughs> at a dancer. I'm going to teach you to dance. And you're just like, what is, why is he, (laughs) what am I supposed to understand from this dialogue? Is this like satire of how this dialogue should work or, or am I supposed to be touched by this moment that they're having? Um, No, I think it's, I think it really is satire. It's really, I mean, yeah. Well, no one is really sincere uh, in this film. And the, the only kind of sincerity we can get from those characters uh, is these—I mean, it's these tiny little moments when they when they show when they show their gratitude to someone, right? So it's—I mm-hmm. mean, they don't have uh, uh, any kind of deep psychology. No, yeah. I mean they don't uh, express their gratitude in in long term. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, all all these kind of characters are superficial, just like Las Vegas and the city of, I know, pyrotechnic consumption. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a good, it's a good take on Las Vegas. I guess you're right. I mean, I just, I had no idea what to make of this movie. I never saw it when it first came out in 95, but I remember the hoopla around it because it was such a big deal that it was rated NC-17, and I just, I don't think I realized how silly it was going to be. So when I was watching it the other day, I was just sort of discombobulated, disoriented by um, the performances and the this general silliness. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty profoundly silly. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess I'm wondering... So there are all of these, I was just what you were saying, uh, Changmin, about um, nobody really cares about each other. Or, you know, like I get there's one relationship that becomes a meaningful one and it's between Nomi and her roommate. Right. Um, mm. And uh, but all of the others in this film are like temporary alliances. Right. <laughs> like that can be broken at any moment, <laughs> you know, Um and, and from moment to moment. Yeah. From moment to moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and it just sort of seems like so as soon as we s- see that Nomi is willing to sacrifice something for someone else, it, as soon as she's willing to, like, engage um, and defend someone that she feels like is a meaningful relationship, she's like, got to get out. Right. Like. She has to leave town. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> so she's, as soon as she develops any actual uh, tie, you know? Um, so it really is funny. Like the idea that it's, it is about superficiality. It is about that for her because as soon as any, you know, any ties actually form, she has to get out. Um, and even, you know, the, the romances are nothing. The like alliances with mentors or mentees like, nah, you know? Um, well, it's it's also about, a certain kind of repetition of all different kinds of firework in this film. Yeah. Like, uh, Nomi's debut ceremony is just like Crystal's yeah. debut ceremony. I mean, the it's shot. Like unending cycle. Right. Yeah. So it's like and the beginning of the film and the end of the film are exactly the same. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, an ongoing process of repetition of... Um, 
I don't know if it's meaninglessness, but to extract certain kind of um, money out of or any kind of resources from um, different forces or different people. I mean, and in this city, women, right? Yeah. Like just, which is why I think it's such a maybe interesting politically, you know, a film because it, it it's is so like self consciously about. Uh, about the exploitation of women on, on throughout the hierarchy. <laughs> There's all of these exploitations happening and, and all of our, like I wanted to talk about the male characters too, because they're, yeah, I think that they're really interesting. Um, I mean, Kyle McLaughlin, who's, you know, from Twin Peaks fame, but he, <laughs> and, and he's always just sort of a boyish, but mischievous uh, kind of lusty, guy and and but never super trustworthy so he's like perfectly cast um but i don't know i'm 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 wondering what you guys think about about the male characters well let's uh we'll pick back up on that uh in just a moment let's take a quick break and when we return we'll continue this discussion of showgirls and the men that populate that film yeah (laughs) Underwriting support for KRUI is provided in part by the Angler Theater, a community arts center and performance space that highlights the talents of local performers, artists, ensembles, and hosts regional, national, and international touring performances. Angler is located at 221 East Washington Street in Iowa City. For more information, dial 319-668-253 or go to www.engler.org. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI, Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films, showing locally at Film Scene. We're currently discussing Showgirls. Catherine, what, we are at the question of men in this film. Yeah, so what do you guys think of... So Kyle MacLachlan plays Zach, who's the kind of entertainment director at the Stardust, who moves quickly from... Uh, from Crystal to Nomi, uh, the new starlet. But then there's also this, I think, really interesting character um, of James, who's the choreographer who tries to kind of... The man with the sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tries to compose like a, an artsy, risque uh, dance for, for Nomi um, and a romance uh, with her as well because no one is interested in just... Uh, friendship or inspiration. <laughs> Does he? Wait, am I thinking the right guy then? Who tries to... Oh, no, no, no. You're thinking of the the bouncer guy. I was thinking of the guy with the red hair and the sweaters when you said choreographer. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, uh, I guess he was a bouncer at one of the clubs, but he's he's this choreographer on the side right, and right, right. brings yeah. her to his house and they start doing a dumb dance. Um yeah, well, yeah. He, a dance that's supposed to be true to dance, right? Wait, his name is James? I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, yeah, so James, I'm, I was getting my choreographers confused. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was like another moment where I'm like, I don't know what to do with this scene because he's like, I'm going to teach you to dance. And then they start doing a chair dance together yeah. and making out. And I was like, is this real dancing? I don't <laughs> understand. Like, it's not, I'm not like a professional. Yeah, dancer, <laughs> like in dirty dancing, you get the like, this is ballroom dancing and this is dirty dancing. And like, you can visually understand the difference. But in this film, that kind of happens a few times where you're like, 
this is supposed to be a beautifully choreographed dance and tasteful, and this one's dirty and blasé, and both of them look exactly the same to me. Like, <laughs> everyone's naked, and everyone looks like they're having sex. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, that's the case for the audiences in this film. Like, they cannot tell the difference. I yeah. mean, oh, wait, well, they can tell the difference that, okay, Jim's choreography is bad. It's not arousing enough right so that's why all the audiences in one club boo him Mm -hmm. and his dancers so you could tell that it wasn't arousing enough i mean i couldn't i couldn't make heads or tails of it it looked all the same to me (laughs) just (laughs) i mean i i can't but i mean obviously the audiences in this film can right well i think that the the thing that becomes central to the dancing in this film is money, right? Because you're, you're like not accoutred enough um, at the strip club, right? Like you're, you're not doing, you're naked and there's no opulence around you. And then there's this sort of artsy dance where they're just like wearing black and they're trying to, but, and so it's kind of a, I don't know, a medium point. But then we have the stardust and like everyone's covered in like Chris Stardust. Stardust. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like sequins and, you know, like even if they're naked, they're just like, there's often just like diamonds in places. They're just you know? bejeweled. Yeah, they're just like bejeweled boobs. And so you're just like, what? Bejeweled. <laughs> yeah. Just like, what is going on? The valuation is literal valuation, right? It's just like, what has the most money? And that's what makes it higher on the like hierarchy, but it's it. Yeah. But to an actual viewer, you're just like, what's the difference? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Well, we have to remember in Las Vegas, the show or or all these performances are just supplementary. They are not the things that make money. So, I mean, in one particular sequence, uh, Zach uh, is on the phone talking about, Oh, how they are going to adjust those gambling machines and whatnot, yeah. and he has an MBA or whatnot. So we have to under well, we have to understand uh, this film or the girls in this film uh, who try to build their dream on a certain kind of illusion. Yeah, without any kind of foundation, because all of these are just you know uh, one form of firework or another so it's in that sense it is a little bit like starship troopers i don't know yeah it's that's true because i mean even as this film begins and she's saying i'm going to las vegas to be a dancer the first thing i thought was well aren't you supposed to go to los angeles to do that um because yeah they're not only like not only is their profession in las vegas like just pure spectacle and sort of empty. It's also not even the main spectacle. Like it's not even the reason why people are in Las Vegas. That's a great point. It's just like this other veneer of whatnot that's happening (laughs) near the slot machines. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So, uh, there's, we have to, we should talk about the rating because it's now 20 years ago that this was rated NC 17 and, I, I don't. Do you guys think that it deserves the NC seventeen? Looking looking back on it, now, I mean, you know, watching it now in context of 
2015. So, I mean, the we know that the rating system is fairly problematic. Well. Um, and certainly, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like not only like the way things get rated, but also general um, American entertainment values where like sex is always rated more severely than violence and yeah. this, that, and the other. And NC-17, I mean, even today, it's a big deal. Like things just aren't rated NC-17, like I, presumably because producers don't feel that they can make enough money with that kind of rating. Um, I felt like there was, it, it was certainly raunchier than anything I've seen in an R rated movie. I think, like, just in terms of the excess of the nudity and the excess of the simulated sex scenes, um, it did feel like more, like just yeah. more was happening all the time than in most films, which might have one or two scenes. And this was just like constant, like you couldn't, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't like edit this for TBS, I don't think, right? Like this would be. You have to use the black bars. Just constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a funny story about this where, uh, my grandfather used to go to the movies once a week, no matter what was playing. He would just, he called it going to the show. And when this came out, he went and saw showgirls and he came to Sunday dinner at my house and he's like, yeah, so I saw showgirls. My mom was like, what? Why? And he's like, I don't know. It was what was playing. He was like, some movie. <laughs> like that was it. It was just sort of like, just another movie. <laughs> well, you can tell it's rating from... The difficulty we are having right now to talk about this film on radio because we cannot talk about anything. Like, I mean, all these really, really, really long simulated sex scenes. I mean, it's not just one. It's like two or three. I mean, I cannot count, but it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, yeah. I, I guess I was not as disturbed by it this time like it seems so cartoonish to me that i was not thinking that it was nc-17 material at this point but i don't know i mean this is worthy of talking about right now because i think that showgirls still is the only major studio release that was like backed at nc-17 they're like yes we're doing this nc-17 wide release Yes. (laughs) Usually NC-17s are independent films, uh, very limited, not very, but limited release, you know, New York, LA, big cities, you know, um, something like, uh, you know, Lust Caution, which came out several years ago, which was NC-17. Um, that was definitely very limited release. Um, and they had two versions. I think that, I think there was an R rated version and an NC-17 version. Um, and, uh, obviously this next week, uh, this weekend, um, 50 shades of gray is coming out and never heard of it. Is, no. it-, <laughs> is it a novel? Yeah. Have you spoken film? to me before? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, and, and this one at first there was a whole buzz around it's going to be NC 17. How could it not be? Um, but now they're doing an R they're doing, okay. Wide release, wide, wide release. I've checked the times at our local Marcus Theaters, and it's it's like every hour uh, that they're showing <laughs> this film. Uh, so this is a very wide release, um, and yeah, and it's and it's R rated. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm wondering, is this is this still something worthy of being worried about? Like the specific 
um, sexualized uh, rating kerfuffle around these kinds of movies. Um, I guess we are getting accustomed to uh, this kind of film, especially after Show Bus or Nice Songs. I mean, all these unstimulated sex scenes. Um, I feel like uh, we we are sort of, I don't know, being educated or um, unsensitized by real sex on screen. So in a sense, uh, maybe that's why we can accept um, Fifty Shades of Grey as only an ordinary commercial film. Mm-hmm. And many people who have read the book told me that uh, this book is not as radical as, no. well, as a lot of critics assume. So, I mean, maybe, I mean, obviously I cannot think of anything that is going to be more exciting in Fifty Shades of Grey than in Showgirls. Well, and think about the audience that they're targeting, right? The whole thing about Fifty Shades of Grey is that for whatever reason, Birth of the Kindle or Rise of the Kindle or whatever, it was so sort of like regular everyday women are reading this. Women are reading it on the subway, going to work, housewives, moms. Um, it wasn't seen as sort of, uh, it was scandalous, but it was like something everybody did. Mm-hmm. If they were to put this NC-17 rating on it, people would be like, oh, like Showgirls, like that dirty movie from 20 years ago. <laughs> and they wouldn't want to be, I mean, I could see, you know, this this exact demographic not wanting to be associated with that, but wanting to be associated more with like a cultural phenomenon that everyone has told themselves Fifty Shades of Grey is. Like, oh, I'm not in it for all the like super dirty stuff. It's just like a cultural phenomenon and it's fun. And so they want that R rating. They don't want to go see NC-17 stuff on Valentine's Day. I don't know. Is that fair? But yeah. that's also an excuse. I mean, the reason that... Well, of course it's an excuse. <laughs> right. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we all want to read something that is exciting in, I don't know, a civilized way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. I just like the way you're describing it. <laughs> Like, oh, we want some sex, but, you know, uh, in a way that is not offensive to all those conservatives. Yeah, well, I don't know. I guess I I think that it's inevitable that this film is going to be, like, salacious in a way that's going to offend some people, um, just like Showgirls. But I think, we, I think the point, I guess, that I was trying to kind of get at was that we've especially through a a lot of the, I think um, the kind of quality TV shows, you know, a game of Thrones perhaps um, (laughs) have gotten so, um, you know, adjusted to, you know, lots and lots of nudity all the time, lots of crazy violence um, that it's just like, ah, R, NC 17, whatever, you know? Um, But that, so for audiences, maybe it's not a big deal, but for studio people, it's it's still just like such a, like they're gun shy about, about NC-17 in this way that's, that is so almost old Hollywood versus the 
the kind of, I don't know. But, and well, and cable TV can always get away f- with more because you watch that in the privacy of your own home. I mean, yeah. in a theater, you go there with the crowds and yeah. you see your neighbors <laughs> and you sit in that theater and walk out with them and have to make eye contact with people. <laughs> so I, I think it's fair that the, the studios take that into consideration as a factor in terms of like, what is the herd mentality about this? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. All right, guys. Uh, Showgirls is showing uh, at Film Scene this Saturday night, uh, uh, February 14th for Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's. (laughs) At 11 p.m. (laughs) as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here as always. Changmin, it was great having you back this week. Happy to be back. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week. You're listening to your student-run sound alternative, 89.7 FM, KRUI. Now, take him to be tortured. Oh! You're listening to KRUI Iowa City, your sound alternative. Let the others have some have some time, <laughs> so those British stars can actually get some awards. I don't know. All right, well, um, that's gonna wrap it up for today. Uh, I'll remind you that all of the Oscar-nominated shorts will continue to play at Film Scene throughout this week and the next. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, 
please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter, Catherine. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Pat, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me again. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.